Konasana. So this afternoon we'll begin with meditation, and um, I'll simply read slowly a few more of these citations by Padmasambhava from some of the Dzogchen Tantras. I won't give any commentary during the session, but just a brief commentary, I think maybe five, ten minutes I think will be enough, after the session, just in case a little bit of clarification might be helpful. And then uh, there are a number of questions that have stacked up here, written questions. So I'll address those, and if there's still time left, and any points of clarification or observations you would like to make, we can go to those. The questions may take up our time today. We'll see there's quite a few of them. And then also I'd like to suggest that um, the format, as you can see, has changed somewhat. So overall, for the afternoons, um, there will be more time for discussion. So I'd like, uh, I'd like to make this request. And that is, if you have a question or an observation, if cover, of course, it doesn't have to be a question. It can be an observation, a sharing of your experience. That's always been the case. Um, but from now on, unless you really would like to have your observation or question be anonymous, which is always legitimate, perfectly fine, uh, if you do that, if you would like that, uh, then write it down and don't put your name on it, because otherwise I might accidentally read it. Um, but if you have no particular reason to want your question or observation to be anonymous, let's do it live. I think it's more, it's more engaging and it's, yeah, yeah, quite just that. It's more personal, more engaging. So, please find a comfortable position. And if that's flat on your back, go for it. Settle your body, speech, and mind in the natural states. Let your awareness come to a point of effortless stillness. Stillness because of its freedom from grasping. Let your eyes be at least partially open. No problem if they're covered, as with a mindfold or some other covering of the eyes. The eyes being open is integral to this practice of Dzogchen meditation. But although the eyes are at least partially open as much as possible, simply evenly rest your awareness in the space in front of you without focusing on any visual object, without anchoring your attention 
on any visual appearance. Just rest your awareness in space with no object and with no subject, utterly at ease, awareness resting in its own place. Note the utter simplicity of this practice that is no practice. It is no practice in the sense that you're not doing anything. You're not striving for anything, hoping or fearing for anything. Not seeking to modify anything. Just resting your awareness in this ever-fresh, present moment without slipping into ruminations about a non-existent past or about a non-existent future, but resting your awareness in the one reality available to us, the reality of the present moment. Rest in that clear, discerning, cognizant flow of non-conceptual awareness. Padmasambhava explains that the preceding discussion in the self-arisen or self-emergent unborn natural luminosity, this text continues on at great length. He proceeds then to another citation from the all-accomplishing sovereign. And it states, O great being, listen. My nature is thus. Now the speaker here is Samantabhadra personification of your own pristine awareness. My nature is thus. My existence is not more than unity. My display is revealed in dual aspects. Or my displays are revealed in dual aspects as this and that, yes and no, the whole range of polarity.
begin very brief commentary, each of these phrases is not something to think about, to try to figure out or conceptualize. But let each one simply point your attention right in upon your own awareness so that you can see your own face, Rikpa knowing Rikpa. These are pointing out instructions for you to attend to the reference what the words are seeking to guide you to. My origination is to arise as the nine yanas. My synthesis is to be synthesized as the great perfection. My being is, is bodhicitta. My dwelling is to dwell in the absolute space of phenomena. My luminosity is luminosity in the space of awareness. My pervasion is to pervade the, all of the physical worlds and their sentient inhabitants. And my origination is to arise as the entire phenomenal world. Regarding my display, I have no substance of signs. Regarding my vision, I am free of attended objects or free of reference.
Regarding my consciousness, there are no words to describe it. This essence, which does not arise from causes, is free of all verbal designations. If you wish to comprehend that reality with certainty, examine it as you would space. That reality is unborn, ultimate reality. Upon examination, the ultimate reality of the mind is without cessation. An ultimate reality, which is like space, is illustrated with the analogy of space. Ultimate reality, which is, with, which is without an object, is illustrated by non-objectivity. It is inexpressible in words. 
but to utter inexpressible words, it is revealed in the nature of non-objective reality. If the definitive meaning of this is not realized, whatever terms for reality are used, they, you will not encounter me, veering away from me. I am obscured, and the nature of Dharma is not attained. nature of bodhicitta is the essence of all phenomena without exception. Unborn and pristine, it is without obscurations. Free of a path on which to proceed, it is without pitfalls. Primordially spontaneous, there is no need for effort.
Let's continue practicing now in silence.
Vonasu. I think most of those passages at this point don't need any special clarification. Uh, and then, of course, you have Rinpoche's commentary. I think that will probably pretty well do it. But there was just this last citation from the all-accomplishing sovereign that might warrant a bit of clarification. This is on close to the bottom of page 138. And again, as I was reading, I was modifying the translation so it's more, well, congruent with or in harmony with my current uh, terminology. So here's the final citation from the all-accomplishing sovereign, at least on this page, and then it goes on on the next page after a little break. But here it is, the nature of, I say, the spirit of awakening. Well, I'm just going back to the Sanskrit, because most people know what Bodhicitta is, and a lot of people don't know what the spirit of awakening is. So why go to English when people already know the Sanskrit, right? Then you hear the English, and you're wondering, oh, I wonder what the Sanskrit is. What? Sure. Hopefully if we can get... No, no, it's good, good. Good to say it now. So how is it now? Oh, wow, there's voice. That's good? All righty. Good, good. Hola, so. So, yeah, I was just commenting that I used to translate bodhicitta. And it's hard to translate. And there's no homogeneity either. People, People translate in various ways. There's no agreement. And so my choice for some years was spirit of awakening. But then people hear that and they say, and I wonder what the Sanskrit is. Well, then why not just get the Sanskrit, right? And so I'm just going back to the Sanskrit. So here in this brief brief passage, just about, what is it, one sentence, two sentences, the nature of bodhicitta is the essence of all phenomena without exception. This is a very interesting point. I'll continue a little bit on that. In the Sutrayana, you'll hear of ultimate and relative bodhicitta. And relative bodhicitta, uh, that meaning is homogenous. It's the it's heartfelt aspiration to achieve perfect awakening or Buddhahood for the sake of all sentient beings. So that's very familiar, I assume, to probably all of you. And then in the Sutrayana, ultimate bodhicitta is emptiness. It's the emptiness of inherent nature of all phenomena. It's the, the central theme of the Heart Sutra, the perfection of wisdom, and so on. And then, of course, we then we have these two, the left hand symbolizing the ultimate bodhicitta, insight, wisdom, wisdom of realizing emptiness, the left hand, and the right hand symbolizing relative bodhicitta. And then these need to be fused, these need to be unified, and that's where the two thumbs come together in this mudra of meditative equipoise. So quite familiar, yeah? Sometimes it may be not so bad to hear something familiar, set you at ease, for a little while. And then it's often stated, beware of falling to extremes. And that is that you may be falling into the extreme of just going for emptiness, emptiness, emptiness. Say, never mind all that kind of that bodhicitta business. You know, I want, to be re- I, want to be, I want to be free. I want to be free. And really disengaging entirely from the phenomenal world. Because when your mind is non-conceptually, non-dually, immersed in meditative equipoise and the realization of emptiness, you have no awareness of the phenomenal world at all like the arhat after death, or like the arhat, simply dwelling in meditative equipoise in nirvana. Right. So there would be one extreme. And the other extreme would be to be just immersed totally in the phenomenal world in relative bodhicitta, in compassion, compassionate deeds, and so forth, but have, having disengaged from deep insight into the actual mode of existence, the nature of existence of phenomena, disengaged from ultimate bodhicitta. 
So therefore, the union of these two and the, the admonishments or warnings don't fall to this extreme or that extreme. One is called the extreme of quietism, jiwe-ta, the extreme of peace. And that's where you're just slipping into nirvana and kind of you're, you're waving to samsara, everybody in samsara, out the back window saying, bye-bye, because you're gone, you know, you're gone. Extreme, though. Now nirvana itself is presented as an extreme. But of course, if you're simply roaming around in samsara and you have no path to liberation yourself, how are you possibly going to lead any, anybody else on a path that you haven't followed yourself? So relative bodhicitta all by itself is an extreme because, as it says everywhere, the six perfections all motivated by bodhicitta. The six perfections, generosity, ethics, patience, enthusiasm, meditation, finally it culminates in wisdom and it is stated by Shantideva and so many others, all of this was for the sake of wisdom. So it's not enough to be saintly, warm and kind and compassionate, all good, 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 not enough, not enough, it's got to be for wisdom. So that whole theme of balance, balance, balance comes up very centrally throughout the whole Sutrayana. But now we're not in Sutrayana. We're not in this causal vehicle of seeking to cultivate, cultivate you know, the merit and the wisdom or the merit and the knowledge, cultivate wisdom and skillful means, cultivating, unifying. We're not cultivating. All of that is the causal vehicle. The causal vehicle, which entails effort, which entails doing, and which entails modifying, improving, purifying. Right? And why? Because you're practicing from the perspective of being a sentient being, which means there's a lot of work to be done. Right? You don't want to be a sentient being anymore. You want to be a Buddha. Well, that means roll up your sleeves and get to work, because there you are, meditating, and you have to meditate. You have to do something. Do something. What's so fascinating here, I mean, I find everything fascinating. In Dharma, there's nothing that's not fascinating. Is that even if you're following that trajectory, uh, laid out, for example, with such brilliance and such exquisite precision and depth, like the Lam Rim of Tsongkhaba, but then, of course, the Lam Rim, the Lam Day of the Sakya tradition and so forth, they're all of the same plane. The the whole cultivation of the, the renunciation, the bodhicitta, the realization of the emptiness, then moving on into stage of generation and completion, moving through the four empowerments, you know, and then finally you get to the fourth empowerment, the word empowerment, and then what do you do then? Nothing. At some point, sooner or later, you finally have to adopt a fruitional vehicle. You can't get there by following the, the a, how do you say, the, the causal vehicle. You can't, you can't actually get to the destination by following a causal vehicle. You can get very close. You can get right to the cusp. But you can't be practicing as a sentient being and have that thrust you over to, with a little bit more effort. Give it one more, like a woman giving birth, one more push. One, and finally the baby comes out. I've seen so many movies, you know. I know all about this. So the tenth stage bodhisattva, you know, it's not like the Buddhists are saying, give it one more push. They're not. As you're seeking to emerge from the womb of all the Tathagatas. Tathagagarma, right? They're not. As Dingo Kenzanabhachi said, when you're there, when you're right there, you're on the cusp, your last moments as a sentient being. Right? He says this in this wonderful short commentary, his legacy, his 
inheritance that he's giving to his Western disciples. There's a wonderful commentary to the seven-point mind training called Enlightened Courage. He says there that when you're there as a tenth-stage bodhisattva and you're right on the cusp of having the final veils of cognitive obscuration, jne avarana, are about to fade away and evaporate. At that point, when you're right on the cusp, he said you have no preference for nirvana over samsara. And there's nothing to do. There's nothing more to do. Sooner or later, you have to practice Dzogchen. You can practice it early, middle, or late, but sooner or later, that word empowerment, you look at it, it's Dzogchen. There's nothing to do. Now, simply release even the tiniest vestige of grasping onto yourself as a sentient being and let reality rise up to meet you. So speaking from this Dzogchen perspective, insofar as one can speak from a Dzogchen perspective. Now the terminology, the meaning of the terminology shifts. Still the terminology of relative and ultimate bodhicitta is used. Very commonly. Relative bodhicitta is still what it was. Same. But now the meaning of ultimate bodhicitta is different. The referent of the term, ultimate bodhicitta, is different now. It's not emptiness. Realization of Rikpa. But not realization of Rikpa is something radically other than, or a departure from, the realization of emptiness. But as I think you now well know, at least conceptually, that if you are viewing reality from the perspective of the great perfection, which is to say, viewing reality from the perspective of Rikpa, pristine awareness, Buddha nature, Dhammakaya, then you are viewing all phenomena as empty empty of inherent nature. Just as, again, to bring, to to repeat a bit, maybe not everything I've said has already been absorbed entirely. Uh, In contrast to the Arya Bodhisattva, who's not on the Dzogchen path, comes out of deep meditative absorption, meditative absorption, realizing emptiness comes out, and then in between sessions, knows that all the phenomena arising are all empty of inherent nature. Knows that. Right? Even though they appear as if from their own side, knows that they are empty, right? But is not viewing them either during meditative equipoise or in the post-meditative state, not viewing either emptiness itself or phenomenal reality from the perspective of Rikpa. Otherwise a person would be a Vidyadara. Right? If you're on the Sutrayana, then you are realizing emptiness and in a post-meditative state having profound insight into appearances from the perspective of subtle mind. Subtle mind, right? Subtle mind. Coarse, subtle, and very subtle. Very subtle is Rigpa. But for the Vidyadara, coming out of meditative poise, in which one's mind is simply has completely dissolved into, in a manner of speaking, into Rigpa, and there you are, you may be dwelling in Rikpa and realizing Rikpa in its non-manifestive mode. There are two ways of doing it. Non-manifestive mode. That's a, that's a true statement. And I'm going to express an opinion, which I'm pretty sure is right. Because I don't know how it can be wrong. Maybe some great lama or maybe even just somebody just better informed than I will correct me on this point. I don't know what else a dead arhat could be realizing or experiencing other than 
emptiness from the perspective of Rikpa. I don't see any option. Even though I've never heard any Lama say that. I don't see any other option. Because the Pali Canon, the Buddha's own words, are so clear that all of the five skandhas, including conditioned mental consciousness, the continuum has been cut totally. There is no continuum of conditioned skanda, not even one carrying on, all severed like a guillotine coming down. Okay, Arhat, you're about to die. And then that's it for the whole continuum of all five skandhas. So unless there's annihilation, which I'm totally sure is wrong, if there is an ongoing inexpressible realization of nirvana with its immutable bliss and all of those positive characteristics that the Buddha spoke of, I don't see any other option than the awareness with which the post-mortem arhat is realizing nirvana is rikpa. But rikpa in the non-manifested state, in this primordial stillness beyond the three times. right? So, avidyadara, while resting in meditative equipoise, just having dissolved into rikpa, I'm presuming, I don't, again, I don't see any other option, I'm just waiting for somebody to correct me, must be realizing the same thing. Right. Having gone totally transcendent, your awareness totally immersed in dharmadhatu, realizing it with primordial consciousness, or rikpa, but then sooner or later, the vidyadhatu comes out of meditation. And now, here's the distinction. I think I'm repeating myself. Hopefully it's not just a waste of your time is in contrast to the Arya Bodhisattva, which I've just explained, as clearly as I possibly could, not that difficult, the Vidyadatta coming out then realizes not only that all the phenomena that he or she perceives, subjectively, objectively, and so forth, not only that all phenomena themselves as they arise are empty of inherent nature, but viewing them all from the perspective of Rikpa and viewing them as the effulgences, creative displays, creative expressions, the play of Rikpa. Now that's different. That's the difference right there. One is realizing the whole of samsara as the play of Rikpa, the play of Dharmakaya. Ayya Bodhisattva doesn't get that. Ayya Bodhisattva is not viewing phenomena from the perspective of Rikpa. If that Ayya Bodhisattva is, that Ayya Bodhisattva is a Dzogchen practitioner, or a Mahamudra practitioner, or a stage of completion practitioner. None of these paths have a unique a monopoly on gaining access to the innate mind of clear light, which is another word for Rikpa. So we're now coming back to the point, these two bodhicittas, relative and relative and ultimate, in the Dzogchen context. Ultimate bodhicitta now is the great perfection. It is viewing all phenomena of samsara and nirvana as all being equally empty of inherent nature and all equally being displays of rikpa. And your awareness that is Rikpa itself is primordially non-dual from Dharmadhatu, the absolute space phenomena. And during reality from that perspective is the great perfection, and that is ultimate bodhicitta. Now, for example, in the Vajra Essence, the most elaborate, most extensive detail presentation of the entire path of Dzogchen by Padmasambhava, transmitting through Dujum Lingba. There's very little, if anything, in the way of meditations on bodhicitta. Brief reference, extremely brief, to doing, well, do the seven preliminaries, but do the four common preliminaries, the four thoughts to turn the mind. Very brief lesson. It's one sentence. It says, do the seven uncommon preliminaries. 
And then he's plunging right into the mainstream, which I've, I've described a number of times. I'll probably allude to again. And he goes through a shaman, he goes through a vipassana, he goes through a detailed expl- explanation of stage of generation and completion. And then he goes on to um, the actual teachings on Tech Chirut, with again returning to preliminary practices. Back to the four thoughts in the mind, kind of like seeing it again for the first time. Um, but in that whole trajectory, now he's way up in the path, right? Sage regeneration completion, already not finished, but already really explored that territory. Now you're in texture. Now you're ready to really cut through, right? To pristine awareness. And may one may, one may wonder, but where is that nice balance of the sutrayana? You know, relative bodhicitta, ultimate bodhicitta. You know, like you get in these seven-point mind training. It goes ultimate bodhicitta first, and then a big, long presentation of relative bodhicitta. So haven't we lost our balance here? Where's the, where's the, you know, where's, where's that? You know, Asanga's method, or Shantideva's method, or Tsongkhava's method, or what have you. Where's the method for cultivating bodhicitta? And Padmasambhava, the lake-born Vajra, his response to that question, he, he states it. I think he states it in the opening section, because I think it's in the book Stilling the Mind, my commentary, the opening section, is that if you think you need to somehow cultivate relative bodhicitta apart from realizing ultimate bodhicitta, I can't quote it, but it's like saying, being in the midst of the ocean and looking around for where you can get a cup of water. And then from this perspective, he's now really speaking from the perspective of Dzogchen. He said, those other ones, those cultivations of relative bodhicitta, that's just cultivating a dualistic, conceptually driven compassion for others like that of a mother for her child. He said, look nowhere else. If you fathom, if you know your own nature, if you fathom rikpa, ultimate bodhicitta, relative bodhicitta comes out spontaneously effortlessly. It's not this versus that. It's not the left hand versus the right hand. This is prior to the division of left hand and right hand. The ultimate bodhicitta of Dzogchen is Rigpa. That's not on the wisdom side of the fence. It's not on the skillful mean side of the fence. It's before the fence. It's before the duality. Right? Before even that duality. It's before all dualities. We just saw it here. And again, I would be changing a lot of things in this translation, frankly. This is 20 years old. But there was just that one. It's going to be extremely brief here. But uh, where was it? It was about my... Oh, yeah, it's right there on page 137. My display is revealed in dual aspects. Oh, it's really my displays. That's the problem with Tibetan, by the way. Um, they have very few plural markers. So every time when you're looking at a noun, you have to know by context whether it's singular or plural. They don't have S. They just say nyam. They don't say nyams. You know, so that's always a challenge for a translator. Is it singular or plural? And often it's obvious and sometimes it's not. Well, this one I got it wrong, I think. It's not my display. Like, here's my snapshot. Here's my passport photo. You know, I'm Samatabhadra. That's what I look like. It can't be one, of course. It's my display. My myriad displays throughout the entire universe, throughout the three times. I think that makes it plural. But how is, in this phenomenal world, how is Samadabhadra, how does pristine awareness manifest its creative expressions, its displays? And he says, my displays are revealed in dual aspects. You remember them? Existence and non-existence? Coming and going? Birth 
and death, one and many, those are polarities. Right? Those, are, those are the four, well, the eight categories of conceptual elaboration, for which maybe we can say all the other ones, like left and right, up and down, fat and skinny, man and woman, and so on, all the rest of them are derivative. Right? But those are some are of fundamental dualities or polarities. And uh, so the displays are out in that field of polarities, dualities all over the place. Samsara and Nirvana, Rupakaya and Dharmakaya, everywhere. So those are its displays. But Rikpa itself, its essential nature, my existence is not more than unity. So he's speaking of his essential nature, not more than unity, not more than one. Displays, infinite. Infinite, right? And yet somehow they're non-dual. And the crucial point here, too, is that within the phenomenal world, within the phenomenal world, we see what I would call lateral, lateral causality. That is, within the three times, within space-time, then you sow some seeds and then you get some crops. You get angry and then you suffer. You are born and then you die. So we see this causality, which is lateral, that it's within the phenomenal world. And then the Four Noble Truths are really how to navigate skillfully through this world of causality. This theme of causality is so absolutely core to the Buddhist teachings altogether, but very so explicitly in the Pali Canon. Ye dharma hetu prabhava hetum you know, it's one of the few things I know in Sanskrit. Uh, but it's that phrase, that, you know, that phrase probably quoted more often than any other phrase in, in all Buddhist schools. Those, those phenomena that are causally conditioned have been karisa. Those phenomena that are causally conditioned and their cessation too, those are taught by the great sage. That was a Rough translation, but that's really the essence of it. The phenomena that are causally conditioned and the causes of the cessation of causally conditioned. That is what is revealed by the Buddha. And a number of these early disciples, they heard that and they realized nirvana right there. became stream enters. Although the pronunciation would have been better. You know, they didn't have to have an American accent. That would have thrown them. It's like, what? <laughs> Opportunity missed. But that's that lateral causality that within this phenomenal world, nothing arises without a cause. And then when you're looking, how does it arise? Then you're looking, how did, does it inherently arise from self, from other, from both, from neither? Then, okay, now you've gone into the emptiness of causality. But phenomenologically, without looking for underlying mechanisms, that's the big boondoggle of 19th century mechanistic materialism that's floated so much over into the 20th and 21st century. It's like bringing a horse and carriage into MIT. You know, it's like, that's quaint, but why did you bring a horse and carriage here, you know? Because it's so antiquated. The notion that every causal event has to have some underlying mechanism is so, like, 150 years out of date. It's kind of comic. Buddhist notion of causality is entirely phenomenal, phenomenological. Right? You're not looking for underlying mechanisms. It's, it's within the realm of empty appearances. So how could you have underlying mechanisms if they're empty appearances? It's simply, this occurred and then that occurred. And that, that occurred on a very regular basis. There was a regularity there, right? And then this ceased, and then that ceased. And that was a regularity. And that we call the laws of karma, or the laws of causality. So the point, I'm rambling a little bit, actually, but this is actually quite coherent, everything I'm saying. It is in my mind, if you're in mind, that's cool. If not, 
I'm doing my best. But phenomenologically, there's this lateral causality, which scientists are studying, and have made brilliant discoveries in so many areas, you know, uh, within chemistry, geology, and so forth and so on. It's brilliant. But now when we're looking at all of this from, not from the perspective of being in samsara, with a human mind, or even from the perspective of substrate consciousness, which is still, of course, within samsara, when you're viewing this whole phenomenal world from the perspective of rikpa, from a timeless perspective, it's all a matter of perspective, then all these displays are spontaneous actualizations, spontaneous, rangjung, self-emergent, 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 self-arising, self-illuminating, self-liberating, self-emerging, self, 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 all over the place, which is to say, not coming together independent upon other causes and conditions. From a phenomenal perspective, of course, of course, of course. Primary cause, secondary conditions, there. It's in science, it's in Buddhism, Four Noble Truths, and so forth. But from Rigpa perspective, from, from the perspective of the fourth time, all these displays are spontaneously emergent. Because it's viewing time from a timeless perspective. So, so in this regard then, this pertains directly to the meditation we had this morning. There's method to my madness, you know. This morning we are cultivating loving kindness. As we did Saturday, cultivating loving kindness for ourselves with those four questions. We'll continue with the loving kindness. We'll continue with the, the karuna bhavana. Bhavana means cultivation. Karuna, compassion. Mudita bhavana. Upeksha bhavana. Cultivation of each of the four. The point that they are immeasurable, boundless, right? Good. That's good. How are we cultivating them? And that is, we have these words, the words I was drawing them from this morning, for this morning meditation, taken almost verbatim from Buddha Gosa's Path of Purification. Theravada, classic Theravada. Some of the most brilliant, practical, to-the-point teachings on the cultivation of the four immeasurables or four Brahma-viharas I've seen anywhere. I'm quoting the Theravada because I just find them enormously beneficial and I don't find quite the same teachings in the, in the Mahayana. So we're cultivating. But when, if loving-kindness is kind of an opening of the heart, an expansion of the heart, a warming of the heart, a moisturizing of the heart, a sense of real affect, of affection, of caring, Loving kindness. An aspiration really does arise. With some vision, because loving kindness has to have vision. It's not content with the status quo. Right? It's not say, may everything go on the same as it is already. That's not loving kindness. I don't know what that would be. I think lack of imagination. Maybe. Right. So if with vision, aspiration, with warmth and kindness, with affection, this, all of these qualities do arise. Where are they arising from? Where is it coming from? Well, for starters, you know it's not from me. I'm not giving any mind-to-mind transmission of loving kindness. Right? They're not coming from my voice. It's a nice voice. I think it's a pretty good voice, actually. But they're not coming from my voice. And the voice is transmitting words, but it's not coming from words. And then this transmission of information, right? From an informer to an informant with the transmission of information or data along the way. So I'm not speaking to, I'm not speaking to a tape recorder not speaking to inanimate objects, speaking to other sentient beings, human beings. So this catalyzes thoughts and imagery, 
in your own mind, right? That's what you can do. What you can do is arouse these thoughts, arouse imagery. You can attend to loved ones and so forth by way of imagery. That you can do, right? You can do that. A bit, a bit spotty, distraction comes in, rumination and so forth. It's not spot on, but you know, none of us here are crazy. We're not just completely uh, scrambled for 24 minutes, hopefully. If you are, then just run the podcast. You know, try it again. Um, but is that where loving kindness comes from? From a really good visualization? Or by breathing? Or imagine a breathing out. Is that where it comes from? Maybe it comes from the breath. Or is it coming from visualization? This really kind of cool fireworks display from your heart. Kabow! Big, big bang of white light coming out. Is that, is that where loving kindness comes from? Where does it come from? Because presumably, you know, if the practice worked at all, something happened that such that your mind was different prior to the meditation and when you were in the midst of meditation. If the practice is working, a sense of loving kindness is really emerging. Where is it emerging from? Where is it emerging from? What's that? Well, ultimately, where else could it be arising from? Rikpa at the deepest level, for sure. On a, on a more relative level, uh, there's nothing you can do with your mind that's coming from someplace other than substrate consciousness, right? On a relative level. You're not, not incorrect at all. But if we bring it back a little bit closer to home, uh, every, every image that comes to mind is coming out of the substrate, and every subjective impulse of aspiration, of longing, of kindness, of loving kindness, and so forth, coming from your substrate consciousness, right? Because that's where the subjective impulses come from. <coughs> And there's a lovely quote, I just mentioned it to one of you today in the uh, in a private meeting. I don't remember the name of the text, but it's one of the classic Theravada texts. It makes a reference to the Bhavanga. So now we're just momentarily resting in Theravada. And you recall that in the, in the Pali Canon, the Buddha makes references to this Babasachitta, this uh, brightly shining mind. Babasachitta, brightly shining mind. Well, it's in Tibetan, it's karasa, rusikisem, mind of clear light. Sanskrit, Tibetan, Pali, Tibetan, Pali, Tibetan. It's the same term, it's just a translation to Tibetan. So the Buddha himself in the Pali canon to be referring to a mind of clear light, or they translate it as a brightly shining mind. Why not? That's good. So what's the reference? When the Buddha in the Pali canon is referring to this brightly shining mind, or clear light mind, what's the reference in the Pali canon? Bhavanga. Bhavanga. And in one of the great Theravada commentaries, and again, I have it in my notes, but I don't have it in my mind right now, or it's too deep, I'd have to go digging for it. It would take a long time. Um, in one of the great Theravada commentaries, it stated that the very nature of the Bhavanga is loving kindness. So not only bliss, luminosity, and non-conceptuality, but love, actually loving kindness. Right? You've unveiled, you've pulled away the five obscurations and what was waiting for you when you unveiled your own treasure house? Loving kindness. So what are we doing with all this bhavana, this bhavana, this cultivation of loving kindness? Which it takes effort. We need to be doing things. We're trying to modify the mind. We're trying to overcome the tendencies of enmity, animosity, and so forth, which are diametrically opposed to loving kindness, right? So, we see this is the surchikilam, the effortful path. It's not arduous, it's not punishing, 
but it does take some effort to sit down and do the visualization, to bring forth the thoughts, to bring to mind a loved one and a neutral person and a person you've had some friction with, uh, and so forth. But I would suggest that all of that doing, all of that doing, very meaningful doing, as are the the sequential meditations for cultivating bodhicitta that we find in the Lamrim and so many other sources, all of this doing is basically designed to remove the obscurations from your own substrate consciousness and ultimately, as Patrice said, to remove the obscurations from your rikpa so that the spontaneous and effortless flow of loving-kindness, and then we'll see compassion and so forth, are finally unleashed, unleashed, you know? Like having a really dirty windshield and there's light shining from the other side. Well, you don't have to create a lot of light from inside. You just need to clean the windshield and you get all the light you need, right? But this means that tendencies of enmity, for example, of anger, resentment, contempt, resentment, and so on, as long as such really heavy obscurations. It's one of the five obscurations, right? Ill will. As long as they're clouding the mind, it's going to be very hard. Well, it's going to be impossible. As long as they are clouding the mind, it's going to be impossible for the light of loving kindness to fl- shine, to flow forth and really manifest in your consciousness. Right? So there are many meditations, many practices designed to cultivate the four immeasurables, to cultivate bodhicitta, and finally, I'll finally end, because time is, a lot of time went by. Uh, but I said I'd comment, 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 so that's what I'm doing. Uh, then all is said and done, all that we're really trying to do is unveil the timeless, the primordial compassion of Buddha mind. And so we can do it actively with these effortful practices, or we can just throttle back and release all grasping. Just stop doing, you know, if there are some things that we are doing that are obscuring, obscuring, hindering, obstructing the flow of compassion, spontaneous, boundless, unconditional compassion, if there are things that we are doing, mental states that we are identifying with that are blocking that, then we can try to ferret out and remedy each of those blockages, right? One by one. Or you can say, you know, Maybe if I just stop doing anything, then I won't do anything wrong. Right? It's true. I mean, logically, that is a complete tight syllogism. If I'm not doing anything, then I'm not doing anything wrong. Because I'm not doing anything, right? That was pretty clear. And so, but of course, if you're not doing anything and you're sound asleep, then your mind is veiled with dullness. So then don't hope to wake up a more compassionate being. But if you can rest there right in the center, rest in that sheer, simple, luminous cognizance of your awareness and not let that light be shrouded and let it melt, then you may discover something very lovely. And that is loving kindness, compassion arise spontaneously, effortlessly from a field beyond your ken, beyond your knowing, beyond your familiar experience. And if you're a theist, and I say this with all respect, if you're a theist, you will praise the Lord when you experience just the, the blessings of the Holy Spirit. The blessings of the Holy Spirit. Knowing I did not earn this, I did not do this. This came from outside of me. 
I can't take responsibility. I can't take credit for this. This was a gift. Thank you, Lord. And you may visualize Jesus or God or a saint. Saint Mary. Thank you, Saint Mary. Thank you, Mother of God. Thank you for this undeserved gift because all I was doing was just sitting there in this flood of a sheer gift of blessings arose. I received grace. And all I can say is thank you because I know I didn't deserve it. I didn't do it. I can't take credit for it. So I see no problem with that. But I also see no problem of looking at it non-dualistically and saying, well, thank yourself, but make sure the referent of the self is Rikpa and nobody less. Nobody more superficial, like your substrate consciousness or you as a human being. So, to cultivate the four immeasurables, to unveil the four immeasurables, to cultivate relative bodhicitta, to unveil relative bodhicitta by realizing ultimate bodhicitta. These are the two complementary paths. And happily, we don't have to choose. Who are you going to be, a Galupa or a Nyingmapa? Well, the Dalai Lama didn't have to choose, therefore we don't have to choose. <clears throat> Who are you going to be, a Mahayana or a Theravada? Yes, please. So there we are. So I'll just finish that. I thought it would be much shorter, but you know me. So this is why you can say that the essence of bodhicitta is, the, the nature of bodhicitta is the essence of all phenomena without exception. That's ultimate bodhicitta. Ultimate bodhicitta is rikpa. Rikpa is the essence of all phenomena without exception, all of samsara and nirvana, ultimate bodhicitta, manifests as relative bodhicitta. So again, to step back into what's called maha-yoga, corresponding to stage regeneration, the essence is emptiness, dhammakaya. It's essential nature, emptiness, dhammakaya. It's manifest nature, sambhogahaya, which is luminosity. Now we have emptiness and luminosity. Right? We have two. We have dhammakaya, sambhogahaya. And then, in terms of nirmanakaya, all pervasive compassion. All pervasive compassion. The manifestations of, of nirmanakaya, of all manners, of all forms, expressions of unconditional, all pervasive compassion. And so the essential nature of emptiness, the manifestation, manifest nature of luminosity, and then this final all-pervasive compassion. That's the essence of the three kayas. And then in this Kaya, then we see, aha, it's not an ultimate trinity. That is, it's not a self-defining trinity, not an inherently existent trinity, because all three of those are empty. The Dhammakaya, Samogakaya, Namanakaya, all empty, therefore all of one nature. And that's the fourth empowerment. Unborn and pristine, it is without obstructions, free of a path on which to proceed. From the perspective of ultimate bodhicitta, there's no path to proceed. Right? It is without pitfalls, so since you're not going along the path, there's no detours, no pitfalls, nothing you can fall into, no problems. And spontaneous, primordially spontaneous, there is no need, no need for effort. So that's that. So, yep, 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 yep. My little commentary to a paragraph. Hopefully that might be useful to somebody. Okay, I'm not going to get through all of these today, but um, 
I'm not sure any more commentaries needed at all. We just have one more day of just reading through a little bit during meditation. So I'll start these, I'll start these questions here. I'm going to finish all the written questions, and then as I've asked, unless it's you want anonymous, no more written questions, have them verbal. But again, written questions if you like them anonymous. So here's one question. How does one practice critical analysis while holding pure view? Well, it all depends on what you mean by pure view. Um, it has multiple meanings in different contexts. I won't now give a big, long... Uh, explanation of that, different meanings of pure view. Um, so how does one practice it? Well, I'll finish the question. Or is this no longer relevant at the state of Dzogchen? Can you? So I'll give a short answer, quite right. Um, in Dzogchen, when you, they don't speak so much of the pure view, but the view of the great perfection. Pure view. That comes up in stage of generation, comes up in stage of completion, and so, and so forth. But when, you, but when we come to Dzogchen, then we simply call it the Dzogchen view, or the view of the great perfection. And once you've arrived then, then there is no role at all for critical analysis, because critical analysis would be, and there's something, something, you, something more you need to do. Right? So the critical analysis comes before, and that was the most painful part of our retreat thus far. Not the shamatha, that's easy peasy. I mean, it's quieting the mind, what's the problem? It's that really nasty in-between section of vipassana, where it's hard and you struggle and it's frustrating. And then I make it all the more frustrating by, you know, bringing all this stuff from materialism and so on. Uh, that's where the difficult stuff is. That's where the critical analysis comes. That's how we have, to, we have to face the music that we're living in the 21st century. To deny that it's just an active engagement in ignorance. That can't serve us well. That's going to just lead to one more bifurcation of individuals as we're seeing all over the place, from Einstein to Freud to Dennett to me and so forth. We're bifurcated, you know. This is a view that transcends all dualities, right? Including dualities of science and religion, Buddhism and science and so forth and so on. So that's where the critical analysis is. So this laid out very, very clearly. Oh, it was clear enough here. But the text that I'll teach next year, if I'm still alive and we carry on, uh, from a Spacious Path of Freedom, very clear there. Gatron uh, Poche taught it. He skipped the preliminaries. I said, I, I assume you know that already. So now we're just going to go right into it. Quickly get into Shamatha, the Pashana. And if the Pashana, there's a lot of critical analysis. Investigating, really probing into the origins, location, destination of the mind. Some really brilliant citation by some of the, from some of the greatest adepts in the whole history of Tibetan Buddhism. Uh, where you're really straining, you're struggling, you're investigating, seeking, seeking. And that's the case where you really want to be reporting in, if you're in an optimal, cir- in an optimal setting, You'll be reporting in to your, your meditation master or mistress, man or woman, and you'll be reporting. The teacher will say, what did you find? When you look for the origin of the mind, what did you find? And, oh, if you try to quote the book, well, look out. You may get a, math, a wrathful manifestation coming back. Yeah, you think I can't read? What did you find? You know, look out. Look out. Those Zen Roshis, those are tough dudes, right? They got sticks. We, Vajrayana people, we got Vajras, <laughs> Vajra hammers. So in any case, the point being that when it comes to the conclusion of that chapter, brilliant chapter, on Vipassana, it says now, there's a point where you just have to stop. Not out of exhaustion or failure or I couldn't find anything, I give up. Well, to stop it when you see there's nothing to be found. 
you find there is no origin, no real origin from which the mind or thoughts or emotions really arise. There is no real location where they're really located. And there's real, no real de destination where they really go. Empty, 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 all the way empty. And then you see it's like, like a crack in the dam. You know, a crack in the dam. And the water, the water starts flowing, flowing, and then the dam gives way. Right? And you see it's not only the mind that's empty, it's all objects of the mind. It's all appearances to the mind. It's all empty, you know. And when you break through the reification of subject and object, of mind and all appearances to the mind, that's when you stop the critical analysis. Now you just rest. But you rest in knowing, right? You rest in knowing. But it's not simply knowing your clear and cognizant nature of awareness. That's fine, that's shamatha, right? That's knowing on a relative level the essential nature of your mind nature of consciousness. No, now the knowing is much, much deeper. It's a knowing of emptiness. And you rest in that knowing. Rest. Time for critical analysis has passed. Now, after some time, if you've not achieved shamatha or the union of shamatha vashana, then you'll be sitting there and it just gets hazy. There will be a sharp knowing and then almost like a drum that sounds. And when the drum first sounds, you hear it and it's resonating. And then the reverberation fades, fades, fades. And then you're kind of just getting, What? And then you have to rev it up again until you really fuse your shamatha vipassana and then the reverberation, the drum of dharma does not die away. Continues. So here's an interesting one. What does your teacher, do your, do your teachers and possibly someone else, seeing the Dalai Lama as Avalokiteshvara, mean that this appearance is an intersubjective invariant relative to their level of purity and conditioning as sentient beings or only to purity alone. That is, for, for example, would a dolphin or alien of equal purity arguably see the same thing? That's interesting. That's interesting. Well, I'll, I'll handle the easy one first. And that is clearly Avalokiteshvara, the imagery there with the four arms, the thousand arms, the two arms, the multiple manifestations, right? And that's just a peaceful manifestation, let alone Mahakala, wrathful manifestation, and so on. Uh, clearly, you don't find just those images outside of Buddhism. Outside of Buddhism. You don't find the same outside of Buddhism. You may find something comparable in Indian iconography, but not the same, not quite the same. So, or Taoists, forget about it. Not there. Christian, four-armed beings. I haven't seen any. I don't recall any. Um, and so, have there been Christians over the course of human history who have achieved comparable degrees of purity of heart, purity of spirit and soul? My answer is I don't know. But then why would I think Buddhists have a monopoly on that? I'd have to say, well, why not? And I just, that will be my, well, why not? And that will be my conclusion. I don't see any reason why not, so there we are. And how about some of the great saints, I mean, incredible saints from the Hindu tradition, the Sufi tradition, and so on. Might they have similar degree of purity? And would they see Buddhist iconography that doesn't come from their tradition? I said I'd handle the easy one first. Well, the easy one is if they're trained in Tibetan Buddhism, yeah, they'll probably see Avalokiteshvara. Yeah. Four-armed, thousand arms, but they'll probably see something like that. Because... That's where they're, from a conventional level, from the phenomenal level, from their coarse mind, where they've learned Buddhism, 
Those are the seeds that are sown. And now instead of simply visualizing, it's manifesting, manifesting. Right? Uh, so it's happened many times that Buddhists will have this intersubjective invariance, intersubjective invariance, which means they're, they're viewing a certain individual from multiple perspectives and they're seeing the same thing. Like this fellow I met, I can't say he's a friend, I just met him, but the one who witnessed the, um, the, the crown ceremony from Karmapa many, many years ago, early 80s in Vancouver. And he saw something, and then he checked with other people. What he saw was just rays of white light beaming out when the crown was placed on his head. And this, he said the, the air was like honey. I think I mentioned that. Well, then he checked with other people. Now, did they all have the same experience? No. But a number of them had, yeah, intersubjective invariant, right? So, but then might somebody else with deeper realization have actually seen him as Avalokiteshvara? Yeah, why not? Could be. Could be. Um, but, so... The easy, easy one was if you're trained in the same tradition, Christians generally see the Virgin Mother, and many have had visions, not only Buddhist visions, and not only Hindu visions, Christians have visions, and so on. But when Christians have, Christians have visions of, let's say, uh, Mary, they tend to be rather similar. Quite similar. I have I've not studied, I'm a religious, scholar, religious studies scholar, I have not studied that in any kind of detail, but general impression, quite similar, yeah. And then why wouldn't they? You know, why wouldn't they? But, um, but when, if a, a Buddhist were, were to have a vision of the mother of Jesus, they see her as this lovely Israeli woman, or maybe see her as Tara. My own teacher, uh, Sakyadamala, my lama, who's right now in Santa Barbara, she's visiting this weekend. Uh, she says the two are the same. The two are the same. Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Tata, the same. well, not equivalent, but the same nature. Mary, manifestation of Tata. And Elizabeth was telling me that when His Holiness Dalai Lama gave Tara empowerment some time ago, he said, for you Christians in the group, visualize her as mother, Mother Mary. Don't worry, she won't mind. Mother Mary won't mind, Tara won't mind. All the same family. You know? So I guess that's my answer. Some variation there. Where it gets quite interesting and mysterious is the word is when you have these, these archetypal manifestations arising in the culminating phase of Dzogchen. And of course it could be, I don't know. It could be that that too is coming from your training in Buddhism. Uh, it could be, and maybe it's not. Maybe it's not. And it's an open question. So I think the answer there would be to get some really super-duper Christian or Sufi or Taoist meditators and take them from, through Tekchut. Why couldn't they? They could all practice Tekchut. Because that's not lodged in any particular... It doesn't have to be Buddhist, right? It, in a way, transcends. Transcends, yeah? Uh, so I don't see any reason in principle. Now, maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. I don't see any reason in principle why others couldn't practice texture. And then if they did, and they gained realization of Rikpa, and they went on to, if this would be allowed... I mean, Gajodhapaji taught this whole text, and there were Christians in the group. He said, you're welcome. Whatever you're, you don't have to be Buddhist to receive the whole text. And include Turtgel, it's here, you, you can see it. And so that would imply to me that you can be Christian and follow the path. And then would a Christian see the five Buddha families? Well, I have to ask him, because my, my answer is I don't know. So there it is. Maybe there's time for one more shortie. There are, there are no shorties. Okay. That one I know is long and interesting. Okay, so here again from. Yeah, good. So from Camille. Given the non-inherent nature of time, 
in the kind of the participant observer sense, which implies that there are as many uh, universes as cognitive frameworks of reference or systems of measurement. So good, so far well articulated. Does that mean that all cosmological theories, whether Buddhist, Christian, or Australian, Aboriginal, Dreamline, my personal one, if I had one, all equality something, since there is no ultimate objective reality out there? Does that mean that all, blum, blum, I'm looking for the verb, are all equally valid? Then I understand. Yeah, that the Buddhist, Christian, Australian, Aboriginal, Dreamtime, my personal one, if I have one, that they're all equally valid. Well, Camille doesn't like to go for trivial stuff, does he? <coughs> this is where I think, yep, I'm, I'm quite confident. We bring in the element of pragmatism. If your theory is to simply come up with a really, really cool theory that's extremely well thought, internally consistent, and does, is not violated by any evidence, that would be the epistemic criteria. Right? That is, you, you focus in on something, there's nothing against it, it's internally consistent. So I would suggest, for example, like, uh, like quantum cosmology. It's beautiful, it's elegant, it's profound, it's consonant with quantum, uh, uh, quantum physics generally and with classical physics and so forth. Um, and so far, it's been good for nothing in terms of where's the practice? I mean, they can't put it to the test of experience. And that's why it's not gathering tremendous momentum, right? Because it's a beautiful theory. You can see how much, how deeply I respect it. But they don't have a, they don't have a, a method to put it to the test. Whenever they come to this issue of the role of the observer, they wind up having, not being able to test it. Special relativity, general relativity, quantum mechanics, quantum field theory, and so forth. Most, they have a way of testing it. The zero-point energy of the electromagnetic vacuum. They tested it with the Casimir effect. I studied it. I did all the mathematics for it. They can test it. But as soon as they bring in this, the observer participant, then they're out of luck for testing, you know, because they, haven't, they, they don't have the background in the mind or consciousness. But So we bring in the pragmatic element. All right? So teachings in the Kabbalah of the Einzof, of the Ein, sounds a lot like Dzogchen or the Tao, or Advaita Vedanta, the primordial non-duality of Atman Brahman, or the Godhead beyond the Trinity, Meister Eckhart in Christianity, and so forth. You say, wow, these, these look very, very compatible with each other. And so are they all the same? Well, although there's a lot of commonalities, no one of them completely cuts loose from its origins. If you read Nicholas, John Scotus Eryujana, you know he's a Christian. Read Nicholas of Cusa, and his talk, his talk of this deepest contemplative realization, you know it's Christian. There's no question about it. It's Christian. And the, the Sufi, is, it's not something other than Islam. It's not cut loose from Islam. They're Muslims. And like, likewise, Advaita Vedanta, well, it's there. It's, it's the culmination of the Vedas. It's not something that's cut loose. And say, that's a bunch of rubbish, and we're going off on our own by now. So they're all embedded in a framework. They're all emerging from a framework. And likewise, quantum cosmology. It didn't cut loose from Newtonian mechanics. If it did, then you'd have to say, well, but what about mutual mechanics? It has a lot of truth. Are you accounting for that? Or you know, you're turning your back on that. You're not turning his back on it. Quantum mechanics does not turn its back on classical physics, not electromagnetism or, or classical mechanics. So, as we approach the end of our session here, the question then becomes pragmatic. What's it good for? Something is true if it works. This is a medicine... 
this is an effective treatment for, for tuberculosis, that's a factual statement. Is it or is it not? Existent or non-existent as a treatment, effective treatment for TB, right? It's a tourist, it's an epistemic issue. Is it or is it not? Just tell me. How do you know? Well, you have to give it to somebody with TB and see whether it works. And then you say, retrospectively, oh, that was a good, that was an effective treatment. That, it does exist. A cure for TB exists because this guy had it and he no longer has it. QED. No, not right. No, no, I just have to finish your, come here with it, with the free, because you have to finish your written one first. Uh, and, but um, you'll have time because I don't have any more notes. <laughs> I'm out of gas. So we'll have more time for discussion. But this is important. So we have these multiple theories from Christianity, from Sufism, Advaita Vedanta, quantum cosmology, and so forth. And then you can ask, what are they good for? Do you have a really elegant theory you can talk about and you can find comparative, uh, comparative mysticism and write a book and get an essay and get a PhD? Is that what the point is? Or to write another dissertation on quantum cosmology and Dzogchen and write another dissertation? Or is the point of all this to become awakened? to free your mind of all obscurations, all afflictions, to fully unveil, manifest, the infinite wisdom, compassion, and power of your own Buddha nature. What's it all for? Right. In this regard, we'd have to say they're not the same. Quantum cosmology, I don't think it's, I don't know that it's purified one person's mental affliction yet. Because they're looking for upaya. A lot of prajna, a lot of wisdom. Where's your upaya? Where's your method? How are you going to realize this? How do you test it, whether it's true or false? And... So likewise, we can look at the kind of what precedes these elegant, profound, mind-boggling, mind-blowing theories. And then you can ask, well, you get glimpses, you get aspects, right? Aspects of Rikpa, aspects of the great perfection. The Shravakas, you remember, Atman, you get an aspect. The identityless of a Shravaka, you get an aspect. Chittamatra, getting mind, you get an aspect. But what's kind of blowing the lid off? How far do you go along? If there are multiple paths converging in upon the same center, how well equipped are you along these multiple paths, religious and not religious, to go deeper, deeper, deeper to the core until all obscurations are removed, afflictive obscurations and cognitive obscurations, and you become a Buddha, fully manifest, perfected Buddha. That would be the culmination. So... If they all, if right now, here's a hypothetical, which actually I think is not true. If all of these traditions right now, including extremely advanced physicists who can thoroughly fathom quantum cosmology with all this mathematics and so forth, if they're all yielding right now in 2014 and 21st century, yielding perfectly enlightened Buddhas, coming out of the Muslim, Christian, Taoist, scientific context, if they're all doing it and pretty much with equal, equal efficacy, you know, 10% were Buddhists, 10% Taoists, 10% scientists, and so forth, then I'd have to say, yep, they're all the same. Because all bringing people, I mean, the cure was complete. They got totally free of TB, the TB of samsara, the TB of afflictive and cognitive obscurations. Then they'd be the same. And then you say, well, since they all work, then their theories have to be the same, because they all did what the theory is designed to do, and that is liberate us, right? Make us free and perfectly awakened. Um... So then it becomes pragmatic, pragmatic criterion. But for that, each, I think each of them, including Buddhism, Theravada Buddhism, Zen, Tibetan Buddhism, to my mind now, an opinion coming, I think we need a breath of fresh air. 
Not my fresh air. I have nothing new. I have nothing new to say. I'm just one insignificant person. You know. Everything I've learned, I've learned from other people. You know. But a breath of fresh air that we kind of look at our traditions with total freshness and saying, these are magnificent teachings. Whoever you are, a physicist, Taoist, Hindu and so forth, these are magnificent, such depth, and we see these great adepts from the past with these incredible realizations. But here we are in 2014. And are these still alive? Are they faltering? Are they feeble? Are they getting covered over with layers upon layers upon layers of tradition and inertia? And just tradition for the sacred tradition and ritual and just tradition. You know. And that goes for science too. You know, tradition. That we don't look outside of science. No, no, don't look outside of science. That'd be fine. Even if it's no answer, better that than finding an answer outside of science. That's tradition. It's tradition. It's remember the Galileo, like remember the Alamo. Remember what they did to Galileo, those religious people. They're dirty rascals, rot dirty rotten scoundrels. No, don't go back there. They're mean, nasty, stupid, delusional people. Don't go back there. Fine, that's fine. You can close the door on your own face if you like. And likewise, religious people say, oh, don't go to science. You know, that's all hedonistic, materialistic, empty, nihilistic. Don't go there. Don't go there. That's fine. If you want to slam the door of science in your face, you can do that too. Right? So, as I have three seconds left, I think what's needed is a renaissance. Not my renaissance. I have nothing to say. I have nothing to add, really. I'm nothing. Nothing at all. But I think really a renaissance of, con of genuine contemplative inquiry. Right? How magnificent that would be if somehow the Taoists, the Christians, everybody that got inspired, let's just start all over again, but start from the depths of our own tradition. Not some new religion. We don't need a new religion. We've got plenty of them already. Maybe more than we need. But maybe just as many as we need. But let's go back to the core. And let's just breathe fresh air into it and have a renaissance. A renaissance of contemplative traditions all over the world. And let's talk together. Let's meditate together. Let's learn from each other. Unless one can say, we have a monopoly. We know more than everybody else. And I don't know who that would be. Let's learn from each other. And then likewise with science. So now this is just my opinion. So you know, you throw it away if you like. I don't care. But science, I think, needs a, re a, a revolution. They've had two in physics. They've had one in biology. We've had zero in the mind sciences. It's time for a revolution. You know, to recognize dogma as dogma, mere assumptions and mere assumptions, go radically empirical, start looking at the phenomena you're trying to understand, and find, whoa, maybe we have something to learn from those contemplatives, and maybe they have something to learn from us. Now let's get it together. A revolution in the sciences, a renaissance in the contemplative, bring them together, and we might have a solution that could help us survive and flourish. Maybe. That's what I'd bet my life on. So today's Monday. Today, the spokesman from our group in Santa Barbara has met with the person who is directly in charge of the property we'd love to acquire. And uh, sometime today, he'll meet him, we'll get some word back. And we'll see whether that might be one of the blossoms that flowers. Uh, and directly under the auspice of His Holiness. Directly under the auspices. I'm just secretary, whatever, catalyst. I'm a catalyst. I talk a lot. You know. So that's it. So we might know by tomorrow. It's only 6.02. I didn't rob you too much of your dinner time. Enjoy your dinner. See you tomorrow morning.